Hey everyone, before we get started, I just wanted to let you know that this episode of Historium is going to be a little different than the rest. Searching for episode topics is perhaps my favorite part of making Historium, but the stories have to be the right length. Some topics are too huge and usually get saved for later. Other topics are too small for a full episode, but these little stories still beg to be told. I figured that instead of releasing a two and a half minute episode, that I could combine several smaller stories into a single episode on a unified theme. In this case, that theme is the ocean. Each of, in this case, nine mini stories will be connected to the ocean in some way. So without further ado, my name is Jake Barton. Welcome to Mini Storium. Episode 21, Stories of the Sea. I uh, really uh, don't know why it is that uh, all of us are so committed to the sea, except I am, uh, I think it's because, in addition to the fact that the sea uh, changes and the light changes and uh, ships change, it's because uh, we all came from the sea. And it is an interesting uh, biological fact that all of us have in our veins the exact same percentage of salt in our blood that exists in the ocean. And therefore, uh, we have salt in our blood, in our sweat, in our tears. We are tied to the ocean. And when we go back to the sea, whether it is to sail or to watch it, we are going back from whence we came. Mini story number one, message in a bottle. A lonely Swedish sailor stood on the edge of his ship, the sea rocking him gently. He finished off his bottle of whiskey and looked at his reflection in the deep. He was filled with a sinking loneliness. In an act of desperation, or maybe even an act of drunkenness, Ake Viking, which is a hell of a name, wrote a small note on a piece of scratch paper, rolled it up, and placed it in a small glass bottle. He corked the bottle up and tossed it overboard into the North Atlantic. He watched the bottle bob up and down in the waves until it was out of sight. And then he forgot about it. But two years later, in 1958, a man was walking the shoreline near his Sicilian town when he stumbled upon a glass bottle, half buried in the sand. He unburied it and pulled out the cork. Inside was a message that began to someone beautiful and far away. The man thought it would be cute to give to his daughter, Paulina. She took it to the local priest who interpreted the rest of the Swedish note. The message asked that whoever found the bottle to send a response. So, Paulina did. She wrote a letter to this Ake Viking. When he returned home from a sailing voyage, Ake found that he had received a letter from a woman in Sicily. He couldn't read the foreign script, but took it to a sailor who spoke a little Italian. He interpreted the letter, which said, I am not beautiful but it seems miraculous that this little bottle should have traveled so far that I feel compelled to answer you. She included her address as well. Viking was overjoyed. He brushed up on his Italian and sent her a letter back. Over the next few months, the pair wrote each other nonstop. Pictures were exchanged and eventually, so were wedding vows. Ake Viking set sail for Sicily. The story of a man sending a message of love in a bottle spread throughout Europe. So, when he married Paulina in 1959, 
their wedding was attended by over 4,000 people. All of this thanks to a message in a bottle carried by the sea. Mini story number two. Here comes the cavalry. January 1795. Napoleon's new French Republic was causing chaos throughout Europe, and many European nations had formed a coalition to stop France's rapid expansion. One such nation in the coalition against France was the Netherlands. They boasted a sizable fleet that limited France's trade. This fleet was responsible for blocking several French ports and adding to the coalition's naval superiority. The fleet was anchored in a strait in the northernmost part of the Netherlands called Den Helder. The French moved through Holland during a harsh winter and spotted the ships anchored in the strait. The temperature was so low that the strait had actually frozen over. A few French scouts ventured onto the ice. I imagine they applied their weight slowly at first, but soon were comfortably walking across the ice, perhaps jumping up and down to test the limits of the frozen strait. The French higher-ups decided to strike while the iron was hot, or in this case, strike while the sea was frozen. The French troops affixed cloth to their horses' hooves to muffle the sounds of their galloping on the ice. They got in formation and began their charge towards the immobilized Dutch ships. The Dutch fleet didn't even have a lookout, because, I mean, why would you? So every single ship in the fleet was captured by French horsemen before they even knew what hit them. The French army captured 14 warships and 850 cannons. Their creativity had paid off in spades. This is the only recorded instance of cavalry units defeating a naval force in battle. Mini story number three, the Principality of Sealand. In World War II, Guy Monsall designed a series of towers in the ocean surrounding Great Britain. These platforms were designed to detect Axis sea or air attacks during the Second World War. However, after the war ended, these towers were largely abandoned, as the British government didn't see much use in them anymore. So these military platforms remained vacant for years. But in the 1950s, these platforms were being commandeered by pirate radio stations who wanted to fight against the oppressive radio regulations on the English mainland. They played all the songs that the British youth begged for, and they were wildly successful. Since these military platforms were beyond the three-mile territorial waters of the British government, they were technically exempt from British laws. On September 2nd, 1967, an ex-army major named Paddy Roy Bates arrived at Ruff's Tower, one of these army platforms off the eastern coast of England. In the process, he expelled a rival pirate radio station. He began setting up his own pirate radio station when he asked his lawyer about British jurisdiction. He asked a simple but profound question. Could we declare independence from Great Britain? His lawyer poured over thousands upon thousands of laws, both national and international. When he finished, he concluded that making their own country 
was absolutely within the realm of possibility. Later in 1967, Patty Roy Bates officially declared the old offshore military platform as the independent country called the Principality of Sealand. The British government caught wind of this pirate radio station that had actually declared independence from them and basically ignored it. They decided it would take more effort to do something about the minuscule operation than to ignore it, so that's exactly what they did. In 1968, British workmen entered what Bates claimed were his territorial waters to repair a navigational buoy. Michael Bates, Paddy Roy Bates' son and current prince of Sealand, fired a warning shot with a rifle near the workers who quickly left the area. Bates was summoned to British court on firearms charges, but the charges were dropped due to the judge ruling that Sealand was, in fact, outside of England's territorial waters. This was the first step in Bates' case for Sealand's legitimacy. By 1975, Sealand had its own constitution, its own flag, its own national anthem, its own currency, and was issuing its own passports. In 1978, Bates entered negotiation with a German entrepreneur, Alexander Achenbach, in an effort to turn Sealand into an international casino. However, negotiations fell through, and Achenbach, who had been given the title Prime Minister of Sealand, attacked the micronation when Paddy Roy Bates and his wife were back on the mainland. Achenbach arrived with a dozen men on jet skis and helicopters and took Michael, the Prince of Sealand, hostage. However, Michael escaped and eventually retook Sealand with the help of several helicopters of his own borrowed from the English mainland. Achenbach was charged with treason against the crown of Sealand. He was held hostage on the platform until Germany sent a diplomat from its London embassy to Sealand in order to negotiate Achenbach's release. Achenbach was eventually freed and returned to Germany, but insists to this day that he is, in fact, the true heir to the Sealand throne. Bates, on the other hand, argued that the presence of a German diplomat negotiating with Sealand further legitimized the fledgling micronation. Today, you can find details on Sealand at sealandgov.org. There you can become an official count, duke, or duchess of Sealand, or join the Knights of the Sovereign Sealand. Patty Roy Bates and his wife passed away a few years ago, and now their son, Michael Bates, is the new ruler. Although Michael spends most of his time on the mainland, a groundskeeper who also serves as Sealand's Minister of Homeland Security remains on the platform at all times. Although Sealand isn't recognized by the United Nations or the International Olympic Committee, the Micronation raises plenty of questions on what actually constitutes a nation. National boundaries are sometimes fuzzy and subject to change. Nothing about the way we establish legitimate countries is objective by any means. So I'll let you be the judge of whether or not you recognize Sealand as a legitimate country. But hey, their legitimate motto is Imare Libertas, in English, from the sea, freedom. Mini story number four, a whale of a deal. On November 9th, 1970, an eight-ton, 45-foot-long sperm whale carcass washed up onto the shore of the central Oregon coast near the town of Florence. Soon, a crowd of beachgoers gathered around the massive dead behemoth. The dreadful job of whale carcass removal fell to the Oregon Highway Patrol. 
These officers of Oregon's Highway Division arrived on the scene and had to decide what to do with the enormous whale's corpse. They eventually decided that they would remove it the same way they would a boulder, with dynamite. The thought process was that blowing up the whale would result in many smaller pieces that would make easy pickings for various scavengers. The engineer in charge of the operation told a reporter that he actually had no idea how much dynamite to use because his supervisor was currently off work on a hunting trip. So the engineer decided on half a ton of dynamite. A retired army explosives expert named Walter Umenhofer happened to be at the beach that day and noticed the absurd amount of dynamite being placed under the whale. He went up to the engineers and told them that they were using far too much explosives and that merely 20 sticks of dynamite inserted in a different place would be far more effective. But they did not heed his advice. Onlookers were ushered back to a safe distance and at 3.45 p.m. on November 12th, the highway engineers detonated the dynamite under the whale carcass. The half ton of dynamite exploding would have worked very well if the object in question was an eight ton boulder instead of eight tons of blubber. Some of the whale was immediately disintegrated, but most of the whale was blown into large chunks and flung onto the town's beachfront. Large pieces of blubber slammed into storefronts and sent terrified onlookers fleeing. Thousands of pounds of whale in various shapes and sizes descended upon the quiet Oregon town. The chunks of blubber caused hundreds of thousands of dollars in property damage and began a local media frenzy. Walter Umenhofer was walking back to his vehicle when a massive piece of blubber smashed into his brand new car. The state was held liable for the incident and was forced to buy him a new car. Walter told reporters that he had warned them, but that when he had bought the car, the salesman said that he was getting a whale of a deal. Mini story number five, the wreck of the Titan. Futility or Wreck of the Titan is a novella by Morgan Robinson. The story involves the massive ocean liner called the Titan. The Titan on her maiden voyage strikes an iceberg at night and sinks with thousands dying due to the lack of lifeboats. Sounds familiar, right? Seems like an obvious ripoff of what happened to the Titanic. However, The Wreck of the Titan was published in 1898, 14 years before the sinking of the actual Titanic. Mini story number six, steering towards freedom. Robert Smalls was born a slave on Beaufort Island in 1839 part of a third generation of native-born slaves in the United States. He worked as a laborer on docks and wharfs throughout his childhood, always maintaining a love for the sea. He eventually became a rigger, then a sailmaker, and eventually a wheelman, which is what they call a ship's pilot when they aren't white. As a result, Smalls became incredibly familiar with Charleston's harbor and surrounding area. At age 17, Robert Smalls met a young slave named Hannah whom he would marry soon thereafter. He had several children with Hannah by the time the Civil War broke out. It all started with the Battle of Fort Sumter, just a few miles away in 1861. 
Smalls was the wheelman for the Confederate gunboat called the CSS Planter. He knew the steamship better than any Confederate sailor and was utilized for various military activities like transporting troops, surveying waterways, and laying mines near Confederate strongholds. Smalls appeared content and competent, so the Confederate soldiers he worked under placed an enormous amount of trust in Smalls and his crew of seven other slaves. That would prove to be their undoing. On the night of May 11, 1862, the Confederate crew of the planter went ashore to spend the night at bars or brothels or wherever the night took them. They left the planter in the hands of Robert Smalls, which at this point was routine. For Smalls, everything was going according to plan. Robert broke into the captain's quarters and dressed in the captain's uniform and the captain's hat. They stoked the steam engine and stocked the ship with supplies. The all-slave crew of the CSS planter raised the Confederate flag and took off into the night. They stopped briefly at a dock to pick up the slaves' families, including Hannah Smalls and her and Robert's children. Once they were on board, Smalls pointed the planter towards the open ocean. Only one obstacle stood in their way to freedom, Fort Sumter sitting in the middle of the bay. The crew could see the Union Navy that had been blockading Charleston from here, but they still had to pass the fort to get to them. Smalls pulled up the collar on the captain's uniform as the sun slowly rose. If the lookouts at Fort Sumter noticed Robert's black skin, then they would be found out and all would be lost. Robert Smalls lowered the captain's hat over his eyes and tried to mimic the captain the best he could. As they passed by Fort Sumter, with all of its cannons ready to obliterate anything out of the ordinary, Robert Smalls gave the signal whistle, and the planter was cleared to leave the bay. They had escaped to the ocean and left their chains behind. Once they were out of range of Fort Sumter's cannons, the men who were slaves just minutes ago lowered the Confederate flag and raised a white one in its place as they approached the Union Naval Blockade. The first ship to notice the planter was the USS Onward, which immediately prepared to fire upon this Confederate vessel coming straight towards them. The captain was moments from ordering the Onward to fire upon the ship when a crewman noticed the white flag. The captain ordered his men to stand down. Smalls brought the planter alongside the Union ship and the naval captain boarded them. Robert Smalls explained the situation and surrendered the planter and all of her cargo to the United States Navy. He also asked if they had an extra U.S. flag to raise on the ship. It turns out that the planter was not the only gift Robert Smalls had given the Union. He also handed over the Confederate Codebook, which had all the secret codes used throughout the Confederate Navy. But perhaps the most important gift that Robert Smalls presented to the Union was himself. Robert's extensive knowledge of the Charleston region proved exceptionally valuable over the course of the war. Using his insider information, the Union won a string of victories along the Confederate coast. At just 23 years old, Smalls became a war hero and a champion for the abolitionists in the North. The U.S. Congress passed a bill awarding Robert Smalls $1,500 for the planter, which is roughly $50,000 in today's money. Smalls was then sent to D.C. to meet with abolitionist leaders and to even have an audience with Abraham Lincoln. Before he left, Admiral Samuel DuPont promised Smalls a job with the Navy upon his return. Robert Smalls went and met with Lincoln and helped convince the president to permit blacks to serve in the Union Army. In the next few weeks, over 5,000 African Americans signed up to fight in the newly formed South Carolina Colored Regiment. 
Smalls returned to Admiral DuPont, and sure enough, there was a job waiting for him. He would be the pilot for the newly outfitted USS Planter, a ship he still knew well. A few months later, he helped take back Fort Sumter and defused mines in South Carolina waterways. He knew where each of the mines were because he was the one who placed them there just a few years before. Over the course of the war, Robert Small served in 17 major naval engagements and was a crucial part of the North's naval domination over the Confederacy. When the American Civil War ended in 1865, Robert Smalls returned to his hometown and bought the home that he was a slave in from his old master. He was elected as a congressman in South Carolina. He served in Congress for 22 years, fighting for the desegregation of public transportation, raising money for freed slaves, and being a champion for the people of his hometown in South Carolina. Decades after Robert Smalls made his daring escape from captivity, a senile old woman arrived at his house. She insisted that it was actually her house, and she would have been right years ago. She was the wife of Robert's old master. She was confused by all of the changes around her, seeing Robert's children running and playing in the home. Robert Smalls did something that I know I could not have done. He allowed his old master's wife to come in and live with him until she died a few years later. Robert Smalls was a hero through and through. He eventually died in 1915 at the ripe old age of 75. He's buried in the plot of Tabernacle Baptist Church. The monument near his tombstone has an inscription that reads, My race needs no special defense, for the past history of them in this country proves them to be the equal of any people anywhere. All they need is an equal chance in the battle of life. With all this talk of Civil War monuments, I'll tell you this, we need more monuments to Robert Smalls. Mini story number seven, Atlantropa. Say what you want about the atrocious Nazi regime. You can't say it didn't produce some crazy grand ideas. One of these ideas was Atlantropa, the brainchild of German engineer Hermann Sorgel. The idea goes something a little like this. Once the Axis powers won World War II, they would need more farmland to feed their expanding Aryan population. The solution involved a simple fix draining the Mediterranean Sea. Now hold on, hear me out. The first step to draining the Mediterranean would be to create a gargantuan hydroelectric dam at the Strait of Gibraltar. According to Sorgel, this alone would lower the sea level by around 700 feet. Another dam across the Dardanelles to hold back the Black Sea, and another on the Congo River that would fill up the Chad Mega Basin and would immediately irrigate the Sahara Desert. And lastly, an expansion of the Suez Canal to maintain a connection to the Red Sea. Sorgel did admit that all of the phases of Atlantropa would take around a century to be fully complete, but it would open up millions of fertile square miles for future farming. Additionally, the massive hydroelectric dams would provide enormous amounts of electricity for new Atlantropa colonists. Sorgel pitched his idea for Atlantropa to basically anyone who would listen. Critics mentioned that the whole project would be an incredibly expensive ordeal and that entire coastal communities would be economically disrupted as their source of income sunk lower and farther away from them. 
Proponents mostly said, sure, but can we win the war first? When the Axis powers did not, in fact, win the Second World War, Sorgel was devastated, but he continued to push his vision of Atlantropa until his death in 1952. While Atlantropa never became a reality, it lived on in science fiction. In Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek series, the Strait of Gibraltar has been dammed to provide more land for Earth's massive population. Also, in Philip K. Dick's Man in the High Castle, Atlantropa is under construction after the Axis powers won World War II. Atlantropa is a perfect example of humanity's desire to manipulate their surroundings to create their version of a better world. Atlantropa may not have become a reality, but it's not for lack of vision. Mini story number eight, Dutch Island Getaway. The Battle of the Java Sea did not go as planned. A combined British, Australian, and Dutch naval force was devastated by the Imperial Japanese Navy. Now only one ship remained. That ship was the Dutch minesweeper, the Abraham Crinson. The crew of the Crinson now found themselves in a cove squarely in Japanese territory. The only way they were getting out of this would be if they could make it to allied Australia. But Japanese bombers were flying overhead nearly constantly. If they were spotted, the entire crew would be captured or killed. What they needed was an idea. Imagine a crew of around 40 Dutch sailors gathered below decks trying to think of a way out of their difficult situation. The captain must have been open to suggestions because some creative sailor pitched an idea that would make less desperate men scoff. But it was an idea so crazy, it just might work. He suggested that they turn the ship into an island. The crew quickly went ashore and began frantically cutting down trees and collecting jungle foliage. They brought what they collected back to the ship and began placing all of it as camouflage. Over a few hours, the crew created an artificial canopy for the entire vessel. Additionally, some crew members applied brown paint to the sharp edges of the ship to make those parts appear as sharp rocks or cliff faces. By the time they had finished, the ship looked almost identical to the shore. The island illusion would be ruined if a Japanese plane spotted it moving, so the ship would sail only at night and remain anchored in the daytime, while also staying very close to the shore. Slowly but surely, the Abraham Crimson made its way south towards their Australian allies. The crew could hear the Japanese planes flying overhead, but all the crew could do was wait and pray that the camouflage worked. In the end, it did, and the Dutch ship turned tropical island arrived in an Australian port with quite a story to tell. Mini story number nine to save my soul. Nowadays, you can look at a GPS to locate your exact location within a few feet on any point of the globe. That wasn't the case for the vast majority of human history. Sailing was much different before satellites and weather forecasts. Back then, when you sailed over the horizon, you effectively sailed into oblivion. The solitude could last for months, day after day staring at an infinite horizon. The immensity of the ocean could be overwhelming. But at the same time, when you were sailing, you were truly the master of your own fate. On the sea, Bernard Moitessier 
had found his universe. When Tessier grew up as a French national raised in Vietnam, he felt called to the sea from an early age, and in his 20s bought a run-down sailboat in an attempt to sail to France by himself. Bernard proved to be a capable sailor, at one point having to dive under the hull of his ship to repair a gash on its side. Eventually, though, a monsoon swept him into a reef on the Diego Garcia Atoll in the middle of the Indian Ocean. He worked there for three years, saving enough money and collecting enough parts so that he could build another sailboat. When he built his new vessel, he continued to solo sail throughout the Indian and Pacific Oceans until his boat shipwrecked again. Knowing he would need to have a worthy boat if he wanted to continue his love of sailing, Moitessier found work on a cargo ship that eventually ended up in France. He wrote a book about his sailing experiences and proved to be a fairly talented writer. His book, The Vagabond of the South Seas, was a marginal success, and it earned him enough money to buy a beautiful 39-foot vessel that he named Joshua, in honor of Joshua Slocum, the first person to sail solo around the world. While in France, he married an old family friend, and they had three children together. In 1963, he and his wife left their three children in boarding school and began a long-term voyage together. First to Casablanca, then Trinidad, then through the Panama Canal, then the Galapagos, eventually ending up in Tahiti. They realized they had been gone for quite some time, so they decided to head home, but not through the Indian Ocean and then the Suez Canal like they had planned. Instead, they rounded the dangerous Cape Horn of South America and eventually made it back to France through the Atlantic. Without realizing it, the couple had completed the longest non-stop yacht voyage in history, over 14,000 miles in just 126 days. With their accidental world record, the Moitessiers became famous overnight. Over the next few years, Bernard would often disappear to go sailing, saying he was called back to the sea. He is quoted as saying, you do not ask a tame seagull why it needs to disappear from time to time towards the open sea. It goes, and that is all. It was in 1968 that the British newspaper, the Sunday Times, announced that it would be holding a non-stop solo round-the-world yacht race called the Golden Globe, which offered a substantial grand prize to whoever finished first. Bernard Moitessier was a huge opponent of the commercialization of sailing but reluctantly decided to throw his hat in the ring, along with eight other hopefuls, several of them having little to no experience sailing. Two of the immediate favorites were Robin Knox Johnston and Bernard Moitessier. The two could not be any more different. Robin was hard-nosed and by the books, turning sailing into a meticulous science, while Bernard was far more laid-back and spiritual, who many would consider a hippie. That pair led the pack through the first stretch of the race, and eventually other contestants began dropping like flies. Of the nine initial sailors, four didn't make it out of the Atlantic. Of the remaining five, one quit after rounding South Africa's Cape of Good Hope, another sunk in the middle of the Indian Ocean, and another, a man by the name of Donald Crowhurst, simply anchored in the Atlantic and gave false reports of where he was at to try and fake a round-the-world voyage. Crowhurst showed signs of mental illness, and evidence found after the race revealed an apparent suicide, but his body was never found. Moitessier and Knox Johnston sailed on, with Moitessier maintaining a healthy lead. At this point, Bernard had been on the water for nearly eight full months and was now experiencing severe depression and mood swings. He began doing yoga for long periods of time, 
and found that it rejuvenated him. By May of 1969, Moitessier was almost guaranteed victory. Other ships began spotting the pair of solo sailors and giving updates to the Sunday Times. Bernard had the trophy in the bag. It was at this point that Bernard Moitessier made a choice that was indicative of his entire character. He turned around. He pointed Joshua in another direction and elected not to finish the race. He abandoned the world record and the trophy and the reward and the fame because he loved the ocean more than all of those things. His decision may not make sense to us, but it doesn't have to. Robin Knox Johnston won the Golden Globe race because, well, he was the only one to finish. Meanwhile, Moitessier sailed for another three months, eventually ending up in Tahiti, where he set another world record for the longest yacht voyage of 37,000 nonstop nautical miles. But based on what we know of the man, I doubt he cared. Moitessier continued to sail throughout the rest of his life, while also writing another book about his adventures and his decision not to finish the Golden Globe race. The book was titled The Long Way. In his later life, Bernard became an outspoken environmental activist and was a harsh opponent of nuclear tests in the world's oceans. He died in 1994 and was buried in France. Nowadays, young men and young women will come to his grave to place slingshots and toy sailboats near his tombstone, forming an informal shrine to adventure and rebellion. Back in 1969, when Bernard made his decision to abandon the race, a reporter for the London Times was on a ship following nearby. When he pulled alongside Moitessier and yelled a question to him, asking why he was turning around, Bernard shot a message from his slingshot to the young reporter. Replying to the reporter's question of why he was abandoning the race that he was for sure going to win, it read, because I am happy at sea, and perhaps to save my soul. The reporter looked up to see Bernard Moitessier sailing towards the horizon. We were born before the wind Also younger than the sun Yeah, the bonnie boat was one as we sail into the mystic. Historium is made by me, Jake Barton, and is a proud member of the Orbital Jigsaw Podcast Network. This episode was super fun to make, so these mini-storium episodes will appear occasionally in the future. If you like this different format, please let me know on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And while you're at it, you can follow Historium on all those platforms as well. Historium is made possible through listeners like you donating through a website and now app called Patreon. I have completely renovated the Patreon page for the show and now has several new reward tiers. If you donate $1 per episode, you'll be entered into patron-only polls where you can vote for what topics you want to see covered in future episodes. For $2 an episode, you'll get some high-quality Historium Emblem stickers and also gain access to those patron polls. For $3 an episode, you'll get a sweet Historium mug and all the rewards from the lower tiers. At $5 per episode, you'll get a high-quality Historium t-shirt and, again, all the lower reward tiers. And lastly, if you donate $10 per episode, you'll get all of the rewards from the lower tiers 
Plus, you will get to choose the topic of your very own Historium episode. All of these rewards can be found on patreon.com slash historium or on the Patreon app. Every single donation counts. Thank you all so much for supporting the show, and I'll see you again in two weeks. As always, thanks for listening.